Welcome to Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Hi there, and welcome to episode 581 of the Sonic Society, the world's weekly showcase of modern audio theatre. I'm Jack Ward. And I'm David Alt. And of course, tonight we are featuring a double bill of a new series entitled The Wrong Station. Which is a horror series in the tradition of Quiet Please and Lights Out for you OTR fans out there, created by Alexander Saxon and Anthony Batolo. The Wrong Station family photos and In the Dead of Winter begins right here on the Sonic Society. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Hey, come on in. Let me just move some of these books off the chair. My daughter, Kiera, first year psych at university. Parties more than her mother and I would like, but she's doing okay. What can you do? Want some coffee? No? Well, just grab a seat then. So I guess you wanted to hear that story, huh? No, no, I said I'd tell it, and I'll tell it. I'm just not going to enjoy it. Uh, okay. Well, I guess I'll start by saying, I never knew much about my dad's side of the family, until he died. My mom's? Lots. Too much, if I'm honest. They're Catholic, so there's about a hundred of them, and, and they all live in B.C., about an hour's drive away from each other. Spent most of my summers out there as a kid, and got enough drama and politics to last me a lifetime. But my dad's side? Well, I've got one aunt and one cousin, but my dad and my aunt never really talked. See... My grandfather was a drunk, and he died young, and everyone in the family blamed everyone else in the family, probably. I'm speculating here, because they all actually blame themselves. Well, you probably know the kind of guy that my dad was like. Not exactly the type to talk about his past, or his feelings, or anything like that. And so beyond the stuff I just said, which I mostly gathered from things my mom told me, I didn't really know much about him until he died. I don't think I really got to know him until I went through his stuff, after the fact. Yeah, people tell me that's often the way of things. Anyway, after he dies, Mom gets in touch with me and says she's gonna go stay at his house for a couple of days and sort through some stuff. 
and since we haven't seen much of each other since Jessica and I moved out of the city, she asks if we all want to come and stay as well, maybe make it sort of a family thing. So I say sure. <laughs> no. They hadn't lived together for years. She was still in his will and everything, and in their own way, I think they still loved each other a lot. But she'd have to be a lunatic to stay with him, and he'd have had to been a lunatic to let anyone else stay with him. You can ask the question. I said I'd tell you the story, and I'll tell you the story. No. No, he never hit us. I think he was always afraid, though, that that was the person he could become. If you talked to anybody he knew, you'd hear that he had a temper. But it went further than that. My dad had real anger issues. Scary ones. Don't think I ever met anybody that angry in my whole entire life. And that includes a couple of my ex-girlfriends. Growing up, we'd always have these polka dots on the walls, where he'd put his fist through them and then patch them up later. He never laid a hand on either of us, though. At least, he never laid a hand on me, and I think he never laid a hand on my mother. I never saw or heard anything about it, and she said he never did, anyway. But I guess you can never really tell in a situation like that. But there was always the possibility. It was like he never hit us, and he never threatened to hit us, but it was like all three of us were living every day with the fear that he might completely lose control and send one of us to the hospital. It must have been terrifying for him. Christ knows that it was for us. Oh, I didn't become consciously aware of this until a couple years ago. Jess made me start uh, seeing a shrink, and it made a huge difference in my life. A lot of guys wouldn't talk about that, but fuck it, that's how it is. Unconsciously, though? I think I always knew. When I was really young, like in kindergarten, it was still cool to spank your kids, you know? I mean, some parents still do it now, but that's controversial, right? But when I was growing up, it was just what you did, right? Some people were starting to say, hey, you can really fuck up your kid that way. But as you can probably guess, my dad wasn't one of them. 100%, that was a guy who believed in corporal punishment. One time he told me criminals should be caned, like in Singapore or whatever. But in spite of that... He never spanked me, not even once. It was like he knew that if he crossed that line once, just one time, then that was it. And there would be no going back, and we'd all become one of those horror stories you see about on the news. So after I got a job and moved out at 17, it wasn't much time before Mom called it quits too and got her own place. I think he was relieved by that. So I guess it wasn't really a happy homecoming to go back there, even with the old man dead. It was a family home, though. My grandparents' place, originally. And in its own way, it was sort of like a vacation for Jess and Kiara and I. Coming to the big city for a couple days is nice when you live out in the burbs. So we take an afternoon to get settled in. Jess and I take the master bedroom. Kiara is about seven at this time. And so she goes on the pull-out couch in the office, which had been my bedroom growing up, and my dad's when he grew up. We order Chinese, and we try and watch a movie on TV, but the TV's about 100 years old, and there's no cable or anything, so it's basically just CBC or the news in Spanish. My mom's not staying with us, by the way. She only lives about 20 minutes away by transit, so she's just, uh, still staying at her place. Anyway, Jess says she's gonna take Kiara to the museum the next day, so Mom and I can start looking through the old man's stuff on our own. She thinks she's being clever, but I get it. Sometimes Jess can only take small doses of Mom. We don't sleep well that night, though. Kiara has a nightmare around one, and it takes an hour before we can get her back to bed. As a result, I'm pretty crabby when Mom starts leaning on the doorknob at 8am the next day. But that's life with kids. 
I make bacon and put on some coffee while Mom gets started with the boxes. Jess sneaks Kiera out the back door before Mom can ask the two of them for help for just a few minutes. And then it's just Mom and I getting to work. And it's actually a lot of fun in its own way. You know, we're down in the basement putting things in new boxes, unpacking old boxes and sorting things into piles of keep and throw away and whatever. Taking stuff out to the curb and I sort of realize that, hey, it's been a couple of years since I've had some one-on-one -on -one time with just my mom. So it's nice. And at some point during the day, we start talking about Dad, and about his life, and about who he was to her, and, and about what he was like when he was young, and stuff like that, and I start to realize how little I knew the guy. Like, for me, he was just this tyrant when I was growing up, and this crusty old bastard when I was an adult. But talking to my mom, I start to see this whole other side of him, and how when she was young, and she had just moved to the city from Tumbleweed, British Columbia, he was this dashing, mysterious figure to her. She showed me some old pictures of him from when they first started going out, and they were, shit, 21 or something like that. Stupid kids. Anyway, she shows me this picture of him at that age, and he looks like a young Brando. Like, Jesus, why wasn't I ever that handsome? And then, somewhere along the way, we start talking about his anger, and why he was such a mean son of a bitch all the time. And that's when she starts to tell me a bit more about his dad's drinking. He wasn't a mean drunk. Nothing like my dad, for sure. If he had been like my dad, and he drank, I don't think my dad would have made it past the age of eight. He'd have killed him. Granddad, apparently, was more of a sad, pathetic kind of drunk. He'd just disappear for a few days at a time. Never had a job, drank away all of his and his mother's money. Probably cheated, though I never thought to ask my grandmother. She's not the sort who'd give you a straight answer anyway. She's all about keeping up appearances. If you ask her, Granddad just liked a little nip now and again. Well, a little nip now and again doesn't make you drop dead from cirrhosis of the liver at age 55. But because of this, Dad had to be the man of the house from the time he was 10, and had to have a job from the age of 15. Never finished high school. That's something I never knew about him. Probably a big relief for his teachers. But that amount of responsibility, that young, is a lot of strain. And that strain's gotta find an outlet. But Dad had to be better than his dad, you see. That was part of being the man his mom expected him to be. And so, instead of drinking or screwing around, he just took all that strain, and he bunched it up inside of him, and he carried it like a lit stick of dynamite in his chest for the whole rest of his life. Can you guess what killed him? Bingo. Huge coronary. Doctors say they never saw anything like it. Anyway, so I start talking about all this stuff, about how so much of my shit comes from my dad, and so much of his shit came from his dad, and it makes me wonder... Okay, so where did his shit come from? And I put this question to my mom, almost exactly like that. And that's when the conversation stopped cold. Well, I don't know if this is how it really happened, or if it's just me making things up after the fact, revising memories in light of everything that happened later. But the way I remember it now, this, uh, shadow passed over her face, like the sun going behind a cloud. And her shoulders drooped a little bit, and she just said, I don't know, honey. And then she said she was tired and we should take a break for lunch. I didn't think too much about it. You know, fair enough, it's been a long morning and she's getting older. Why wouldn't she be tired? Maybe it struck me as a little odd, but again, I'm not sure if that's just me making things up after the fact. Anyway, so as we're going up the stairs for lunch, I notice that she's picked up this big heavy cardboard box and I ask what she's doing with it. She tells me it's just a box of stuff we've already looked through and she's going to take it out of the curb. 
I don't really recognize the box, but she says she's sure, and that it's just a bunch of Dad's old technical manuals. Only, I remembered the box with the manuals, and that wasn't it. And then I take a closer look at the box, and I see it's old. Really old. Coming apart at the corners, held together by masking tape that's dried to the point of crumbling, and covered with this crusty layer of gray dust on top. Now I start to think that maybe something's up. Because if we had looked through that box, the dust on top wouldn't have been disturbed. And also, my mom is 100% not the sort of person who would lose track of which boxes we had and hadn't looked through. She is methodical when it comes to this stuff, which is maybe one of the reasons Jess can only deal with her in small doses. So I say to her that she shouldn't be carrying something this heavy up the stairs. She tries to tell me it's fine, but I really insist. Well, she sort of half-heartedly thanks me as I take the box. I leave it in the hallway at the top of the stairs, right by the office, and I think this is the end of it. After that, we have lunch and we do a few more hours of work in the afternoon. I try and bring the conversation back to my grandfather and my great-grandfather a couple of times, but every time I do, she just doubles down on talking about the politics at the church. So eventually I drop it. Jess and Kiera get home at about three, and I go and pay half attention to some World War II documentary on TV while Mom hangs out with them, and after dinner, Mom heads home. Now at this point, Jess is just in the early stages of being pregnant with Harris, so later in the evening she gets this craving for pickles, and I walk around to the corner store to go get them. But when I walk back up the street, I notice something in the driveway. It's the box. It's tucked in with all the other ones that got put out. And I know Jess didn't put it out. She's not going to touch something with that much dust on it. So I know it was Mom. And at, and at this point, I, I don't even care what's inside the box. I'm just irritated about being treated like I'm stupid. So I pick up the box and I bring it right back inside, and I put it back down outside the office where it was before. I know, it sounds petty, but you've got to hold firm on the little things sometimes. Well, it's another rough night after that. Dad's mattress is well past its shelf life, and Kiera has nightmares again. And this time they're so bad she insists on sleeping with us the rest of the night. So once again, I'm not in the best place when Mom starts rapping on the windows at 8am. Jessica's pissed too, because this is supposed to be a vacation for us, so we should be able to sleep in a bit. But Kiera's already up and bouncing anyway, so if we hadn't been woken up by one generation, it would have been the other. I make breakfast and coffee again, and Mom asks if Jess and Kiera are going to stay and help today, but Jess says they just have to go to the aquarium, and manages to get Kiera out the door before the poor kid can even say she doesn't like fish. Now, at this point, with the rough sleep and the hectic morning, I've completely forgotten about the box. And, uh, just before we go downstairs, Mom heads up to the washroom. When she gets out, I'm waiting at the top of the stairs, and I just see her stop dead like she's been slapped in the face. I ask her what's wrong, and she says, Why on earth did you put this picture up? Now, I've disappointed Mom plenty of times in my life, but she's never looked at me with this kind of disgust she's looking at me right now. I ask her what she's talking about, and I go over to see what she's looking at. On the wall, outside the bathroom door, there's some old family pictures. Aunts and great-aunts and uncles and shit, some of them fairly new, most of them pretty old. I don't know three-quarters of the people in them, that sort of thing. And she's pointing at one of them, and I can see that she's worked up, eyes wide, nostrils flared, and everything. I hadn't seen her that angry since I was a kid, and she's just pointing at this old beige picture of this guy. What do you call that when the picture's all... Yeah, sepia. This old sepia photograph of a guy in a dark jacket, some uh, sort of a military-looking coat. So I ask her what the issue is here, and she asks me again, Why did you put this picture back up? I don't know what she's talking about. I didn't put any picture up. That picture's been there for years. And she tells me, 
that picture was not there yesterday. Well, nobody put the picture up, so unless some burglar broke into the house and started spangling the place with family heirlooms, then the picture was already there. I tell her that, and when I touch the picture and swing it slightly out of place on the hook, sure enough, there's a patch of darker paint on the wall, like the picture's been protecting it from the sun for a couple of decades. I start to think that maybe Dad's death is hitting Mom a little harder than she's willing to admit, and I ask her who that's a picture of anyway. She pays no attention to my question. She just says, Sorry, you were right, let's just get back to work. The whole thing seemed to have left her pretty rattled, so I drop it too. For the next little while, everything's fine. The first 15 or 20 minutes are kind of awkward, and we're working in silence. But then we get into the groove of things again, and we start to chat and shoot the shit. And she starts telling me about how she ran into one of my ex-girlfriends who was a real... Well, and how this person doesn't seem to be doing so great, and everything's comfortable between Mom and me again. Over the next couple of hours, the work pace starts to slow. You know how it is. You open a box to see if it's junk, and then something catches your eye, and the next thing you know, you've been reading report cards from the 1950s for 45 minutes. Well, late morning, I'm stuck in one of these loops, and I'm reading my granddad's old immigration papers. Born in England, came over as a kid during the war. But something in the papers sort of strikes me as odd. Once it hits me, though, it stands out as really odd. Hey... Didn't Granddad come over during the war, I ask? During the Blitz, yes, my mom answers. I look at the document again and sort of blink, making sure I haven't misread it. The immigration papers say that he came over in 1945. She asks, so what? And I tell her the Blitz had been over for a pretty long time by 1945. And I'm pretty sure I knew that in the back of my head, but it was on my mind because of that World War II documentary that had been on my dad's shitty basic TV package. It had been about the Blitz. And when I tell her this, she says it does seem a little strange, and she shuts right up again. After how weird she's been acting, I don't want to push it. Clearly something's going on with her, and she's done talking about family history. So for the rest of the morning, we just talk about, I don't know, some celebrity scandal or something. And then we go upstairs and have some leftovers for lunch. I offer to do the dishes, and when I'm done, I wander into the living room and find her staring at a picture hanging in the corner. It's an old black-and-white family portrait. Mother, father, older daughter, younger son. And because I'm an idiot who can't help himself, I open my mouth and ask if that one was there yesterday too. And then she looks at me, and for just a moment I see this deep, dark terror in her eyes. And I get really afraid because I start to think that maybe she's really losing it. But then she rolls her eyes and slaps me on the arm. Real funny. Real funny, she says, and she brushes past me and goes upstairs to use the washroom. She goes all the way upstairs, even with her bad joints even though the other washroom is just down the hall, the one with the other picture hanging in front of it. Well, I take this new one off the wall, and of course there's a patch of darker paint behind it, like it's been there for years. And I look more closely at the picture, and I notice that the father is the same man in the picture outside the bathroom, about a couple of years older and with a beard. He has the same cheekbones, the same square jaw. Handsome man, and even though the picture is black and white, you can see how clear and pale his eyes are. I flip the photograph over in my hands, and there are names written on the back. William, Elizabeth, Mary, Clifford. Real waspy names. But the important thing is, I recognize Clifford. It was my grandfather's name. This was a portrait of his family. Him, my great-aunt, my great-grandmother, and William, the man with the pale eyes. My great-grandfather. I hear the toilet flush upstairs, and I hang the picture back on the wall. Mom and I head back to the basement and get back to work. 
We're still talking about the celebrity scandal. It's a juicy one. And at some point, the leftovers are getting to me. Not to get into too much detail, but we've been eating Indian food. And after I finish up in the washroom, I'm about to head back downstairs when I notice that box again, sitting in the hall outside the office. So instead of heading back downstairs, I sit myself down beside it, and I open it up. It's mostly just old papers, disordered pages of letters written in a cursive that I can't really make out. So I shift them aside and I pull out this sort of leather-bound scrapbook. And the first page is this folded-up piece of paper that says George V in big letters at the top, as in George V. It's a commission, granting the rank of midshipman in His Majesty's Navy to one William Onslow, gentleman. He would have been crazy young at the time, but back then you could be a midshipman on an active warship at 12 or 13. They didn't raise the minimum age to 16 until, like, 1950. I'd never known he was in the Navy. Never knew anything about him. Now I was starting to think that maybe this was something that had been kept from me as some sort of pacifist thing, you know? My mom's a bit of a hippie, she's from that generation. And I'm getting pretty mad at her thinking about it. But then I start flipping through this book... And I forget about it, because I get sucked into the pages. There are just all these pictures in there, sepia photos from 1900-something. Pictures of life on board ship, pictures of various ports of call. Cool stuff, you know? There's this one picture, though, that stood out. It was... I don't know, it must have been Southeast Asia or something. There are palm trees in the background, and they're standing on a beach. There's this kid in the picture, and I think it must have been my great-grandfather because he has those pale eyes, and because, in this weird way, he sort of looks how I looked at that age. And there's a man with him, standing real close behind him, with both hands on his shoulders. And around them, and this takes me a minute to figure out what they are, because it's a black and white picture, so they just sort of look, not how you imagine, but around them, four or five of them on either side, are these five-foot wooden stakes, and each one of them has a human head spitted onto it. Yeah, to this day I have no idea. There's some writing on the back, too smudged to make out, and this is the picture I'm holding in my hands when my mother comes up the stairs. And when she sees me holding the picture, there's just this moment where it looks like she's going to break into little pieces. But she's a strong woman. You'd have to be to live with my dad for as long as she did. And so she just steps up to me, and as calm as anything, she takes the picture out of my hands, and she puts it back in the book, puts the book back in the box and closes the box. She asks me to take it out to the curb, and I do. But when I get out to the curb, I put the box down and I stare at it for a moment, and then I open it up again. I take the picture, tuck it into my pocket, and close the box and walk away. No, I don't know why. Morbid curiosity? A desire to preserve some of the family history? He was my great-grandfather. He was part of me. I don't know. Well, after that, I go back into the house, and Mom's sitting at the kitchen table. She's put on a pot of tea, and she asks me to sit down. When it's ready, she gives me a cup, lots of milk and sugar. Then she hands me an old, yellowed envelope. I ask her what it is, but she just tells me it's for me to read. And I open it. It contains a stained and crumbling letter, written in neat cursive and dated November 1944. It starts out with, Dear Colleen... My mom tells me she's a distant relative of ours, or she was. She and her family put my grandfather up when he came over. I ask her what that has to do with anything. She looks at me, and it's the look I remember her giving me when I scraped my knees as a child, or when I got my heart broken as a teenager. Just read the letter, she tells me, if you want to. 
I look down at the page. Dear Colleen, I hope this letter finds you well. Have just received word that William has been discharged and will be returning to us after all. And so, I have to ask something of you that is beyond all reasonable expectations. Will you take Clifford in? He is now the same age as his sister was. I cannot go through it again, Colleen. Please, I cannot go through it again. In desperation, Elizabeth. In desperation. Well, after that, I stood up and without saying anything, I went into the living room and took down the picture that was hanging there, leaving the dark rectangle in the paint. Then I went over to the washroom hallway and got that picture as well. I brought them both out to the curb, and I smashed them and threw them in with the rest of the garbage. I didn't throw the photograph out with them, though. I went back to the house, and I found one of the boxes piled up outside the office, and I slid the picture into one of the photo albums inside of it. And then, my mother and I went into the basement and worked some more, both just trying to forget everything by burying it in hard work. When Jess and Kiara came back in the evening, we ate leftovers, and when Mom left, Jess, and this is one of the reasons I love her, immediately knew something was up. And so after we put Kiara to bed, I told her everything. And then we poured ourselves a drink. And that night... No, no, I said I'd tell you the story. No, I don't need to take a break. <sighs> All right. That night, I had strange dreams. I still remember parts of them. I dreamed I was in the living room, and I was looking at the family portrait. But I knew something was wrong because part of me knew that I had smashed the picture and thrown it out. But now I was looking at it. It had become slightly different, though, because in this picture, Elizabeth was now sitting off to the side, with her hands over her mouth, and William was standing behind Clifford and Mary, and he had both of his hands pressing down on Mary's shoulders, and somehow, he also had both of his hands pressing down on Clifford's shoulders, and he was... smiling. And then I noticed that the background of the picture wasn't some drawing room in England. It was that beach in Southeast Asia, and there were a pair of hands pushing down on William's shoulders as well. The sailor who had stood behind him in the photo. And there were a pair of hands pushing down on the sailor's shoulders as well. And all around them, hundreds and hundreds of stakes, all of them decorated with a spitted, gushing head. <sighs> And that was when I woke to hear my daughter screaming. I got to my feet. It was still like being in a dream. You want to run and go, but everything still seems hazy and insubstantial, and you're dizzy and your whole body feels weak. I tripped over something in the hall, the box with the photo album, and as it tipped over, the photo of the beach slipped out and slid across the floor, gleaming in the darkness. Kiera was screaming at an even higher pitch, and when I burst into the room... I could see something crouched over her in the darkness, and I shouted at it, but it came out weak and half-strangled with fear, and the something in the darkness looked up at me, and all I could see was a pair of pale blue eyes. And then Jessica turned on the light, and there was nothing in the room but the two of us and our crying daughter. Jess doesn't... Uh... Well, one time, some old university friends of hers came over and each of them drank a bottle of wine to themselves. She told me she'd seen something after that, but she denies it now. Well, I picked up my daughter, and I grabbed my wife by the hand, and I took them down to the car. We had some cough medicine in the glove compartment, and I gave Kara more than I probably should have as a responsible parent, and then I drove us an hour and ten minutes back to our house. That night, neither Jess or I said anything. That night, she believed it. Kiara? I don't think so. 
I hope she doesn't. No, I never talked to her about it. Because I want it to end. I want it to end with her. I want to be the last one to know his name. The next morning, I called my mom and drove back to the city to meet her at her place. I told her not to go into the house until I got there. All she said to me when I got there was, You saw him, didn't you? And I told her, Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, we did go back. And... When we got there, the front door was open. I'd slammed it behind me the night before, when we went outside. The pictures were hanging just where they'd been, in the living room and in the hallway. The glass on both frames was intact. The pull-out couch in the office was immaculate, where we'd left it in a tangle of sheets. Somebody had made the bed with military precision. The box of his things was sitting in the middle of the bed, and the picture, with the heads, was sitting right on top of it. We took the box, and the photograph, and the pictures back out into the driveway, and then we doused them with lighter fluid and lit them on fire. Then, we sold the house for half of its worth to a development company, who tore it down and built a big, ugly McMansion. Is that it? <laughs> I hope so. But sometimes, I... I look at Kiera, and I think about the kind of father that I've been, and... and I don't know. I hope that's it. I really hope that's it. Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, featuring Anthony Botello. With music composed by Alon Zitrin and original artwork by Jenny Henderson. This week's episode, Family Photos, was written by Alexander Saxton. Tune in every Thursday for full-length episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes, and contact us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. Until next week, thank you for listening. to adjust the dial, you are currently tuned into the wrong station.
Yep, still snowing out there. Looks like you'll be spending the night here. Even if I let you go. And there's not much chance I'll let you go out there and freeze to death. I doubt you'd get your car a mile down the road. It's cold out there. Damn cold. <laughs> still, I've seen worse. Come on, take a seat. Throw your feet up, no need to be polite-like. Now, like I was saying, this cold is nothing. We're down here in the city. Running water, electricity, indoor heat. Hell, even without all that, you still got four walls and a ceiling. No chance of the wind blowing your fire out in here. Drink? Ah, there you go. Just let me know when you need a top-off. Now see, I worked up north damn near most of my adult life now. I was a sawyer, sawmill man. Not much reason, that's just the work there was when I was a young guy. Pa did fish out west, but he comes to settle out here at the end of his life near Ma's family. So there I am, young guy, no connections in the business. I had to work all kinds of jobs up in nowhere and no place. Let me tell you about one place. The last place I ever worked, in fact. Shame, too. First good job I had and all. Spent all those years being a run-around average Joe Millman, and this was the first time running the mill myself. Out in the middle of nowhere, of course, being my first job as the boss. Far up north on the Peace River, then about 50 kilometers north of that, a good while west of Lake Margaret. Like I said, I worked lots of jobs. Plenty further north than that, and plenty in colder places. But none were ever as nasty as that place. Something about the cold there was different. Got into your bones like nothing else. Felt like you were like to die each night. Thank goodness I was never up there too long in the colder months. No man should be cutting wood in the dead of winter. Of course, some bosses wouldn't care and just want to turn a profit. Some mill men, damn idiots, would want to make a bit of extra cash themselves. Some poor guys just fell behind schedule and the bosses made them keep going into the cold weeks. Unions uh, weren't so good back then. This place, though, wasn't just the cold that was nasty. Small town, just a bit south of the mill. Most unkindly folk I've ever met. You wouldn't have thought it was a mill town, and they wouldn't have wanted you thinking it. That's part of the reason I was the boss up there. Not one man or woman in that town wanted any part of that mill. All our guys were contracted from out of town, mostly down here. Still, my boss set up shop there. For whatever reason, the land was cheap, even given that it was pretty uncultivated. Lots of trees, I mean. Big ones, too. So I worked as the boss up there for two good seasons. Good seasons, too. Good pay. It was after that second season that I get a call in the middle of January. It's the owner. He says he got a call from the local authorities. Says there's been lights seen coming from the mill. Now none of our guys, or anyone, should be up there. We cleared out in late November. The police in the area are saying they won't check, and nobody else from that town is going to go do it either. They told the owner it was his problem, and so now he was making it my problem. So we left that night, and there we are up there later the next day, me and Tony Stewart and little Mikey Thompson. Well, I told you we wouldn't be up here too long. Town's just up ahead there, so I'll phone in how there was nothing out of the ordinary, and we'll head back in the morning. Two days or two weeks, damn waste of my time either way. What were these folks thinking calling us up here like this over nothing? Oh, it was probably just some drifter just keeping himself warm for the night. Didn't touch anything important. That's all that matters. Drifter. Didn't touch anything, sure, but left his pack, left his filthy clothes, and his garbage. Why do you figure he would have done that? How am I supposed to know that, Mikey? Well, it's just that he left a fire pit. Food, too. Half-eaten. Couldn't be a bear that got him, could it? 
What do you care for, bear or no bear? Any drifter, any, anyone around here is face down dead in the woods by now. Damn, it's cold. Yeah, yeah, we hear you, Tony. How you holding up there, Mikey? Oh, uh, I'm okay. Say, Mikey, what have you been hauling around that bag for all day? Oh, this? Nothing special. Just this rifle I got over the holiday. Jesus, Mikey! Put that thing away before you blow my head off! Will you calm down? But he's right, Mikey. Best to put that away. What are you bringing that up here for anyway? Well, I just thought I'd shoot a couple of birds while we were up here. But I never saw any. Didn't mean to startle you, Tony. It's all right. But God knows where you got that thought. You know what this place is like. Almost no animals for miles around. Yeah, I can understand it, though. I wouldn't want to nest anywhere near this town. I always wondered, is that normal? I figured the little critters just didn't like the mill, but for two years... Well, you're right there. You don't find too many animals living around a mill, for obvious reasons. But it is a little odd up here. No birds, no squirrels, no anything for miles all year round. It's like they all cleared out on account of something awful. Didn't you hear me? They cleared out on account of the queer folk in this town. Now that's enough of that talk. We're here. Hello? Hello? Anyone around? But there was no answer. We looked around for about half an hour, and there wasn't a single soul left in that town. Eventually, we made our way to the local drugstore and found a note that just said, Closed for the season. Closest thing we had to any kind of contact that day. Well, we didn't think on it too long. Not the strangest thing any of us had ever seen, given the people, given the place. We'd also driven straight there in the dead of night. Dead of morning, really. So we were all eager to get some shut-eye for the drive back. Now, when we set up shop there about two years before, the company built a couple of employee cabins. Flimsy little things, but good enough to sleep in and cook your dinner and put your feet up at the end of the shift. So we set up in my place, the supervisor's cabin. I tried to phone the owner, but the damn phone was dead. Only had the phone in the one cabin there, and I wasn't about to go breaking and entering into someone's house just to phone in about nothing. So we called it a day. Mikey set up an extra cot in the half-level up there. Tony insisted he was going to go stay on his own. There was never much sense arguing with Tony Stewart, so I gave him his key and he was on his way. Me? I stayed up a little bit. Grabbed the bottle of rye on my desk and did a little bit of thinking. Ah, oh, that reminds me. How are we doing over there? Ah, oh, you're getting there. Let's just, uh, top you off. I feel like you might need it. I didn't know it that night, but I needed that drink. I thought about my two years working near that town. No, it, it wasn't the town. It was just being in that place. There was something wrong with it. Big trees, plenty of plants, but barely an animal to be seen anywhere. And just the awful feeling you'd get at night, like you shouldn't be there. None of us ever said it, but you could understand why the people there were the way they were. Anyone living there all year round would be like that. But they weren't there now, and I could understand that too. That feeling, that awful feeling, it was worse that night than I'd ever felt it. There was no way I was going to get any sleep, so I had to distract myself somehow. The last thing I remember is sitting in my chair and thinking I was going to die that night. But I didn't die that night. I woke up to an awful crash and the worst sound I'd ever heard. It was a scream. Maybe. There was some kind of human noise, and it was coming from the cabin right next to ours. I rushed out. I stole my boots on from the night before, and I went to go see what happened. Whatever it was, it woke up Mikey, too, and he wasn't far behind me. Now, I said those cabins were flimsy. 
but they were still solid lumber, made by builders and engineers, and something had blown or ripped the back of that cabin almost clean off. I called out to Tony, and he didn't answer, so I started making my way through the wreckage of that cabin. And I found him. Part of him. Like I told you, I worked a lot of jobs up north in my day, good and bad, safe and unsafe. I've seen folks lose fingers and more. I watched someone die instantly under the weight of a 15-ton pine. I've seen up close what a grizzly can do to a man, what that force of nature can do when it's hungry and has nothing left to lose. But I'd never seen anything like what I did at that moment, and I never have to this day. There, in the middle of the cabin floor, was an awful, glistening red pile of Tony Stewart. It was clear that whatever had ripped open that cabin had ripped him open too, and sent blood, bones, and guts flying across the room. And whatever it was, it had headed back into the forest, leaving a red trail behind it. I finally noticed that Mikey was behind me, and it looked like the scene was too much for him. He was tossing up whatever dinner he'd had the night before, and it was taking everything I had not to do the same. Maybe the one thing that was giving me any comfort was seeing that rifle slung across Mikey's shoulder. But not even that felt much good once we got back to the car. There was a tree right on top of it, and the whole thing was a smoking mess. But it was more than that, you see. The car was beat up all over, bashed apart from every angle, like some huge thing had ripped that tree up from the roots and used it to smash our car like a child breaks a toy. So you can imagine the kind of situation that left us in. More important at that moment than finding out what happened to Tony Stewart was making sure it didn't happen to us. Things didn't look very good, with no car and no chance in hell of making it to civilization before freezing to death, let alone before night and what that might bring. Me and Mikey went about breaking into every place we could, trying every phone. Had to give up on that after a while. It was pretty clear that every phone in that town was dead, and we were wasting time. Well, with no hope of getting away and no way to contact anybody, we figured we'd have to wait. Hopefully whoever called in about the mill in the first place would come by again. That was the plan anyway. So Mikey and me, we holed ourselves up in that drugstore, just about the biggest, strongest building in that town. There was no knowing if that'd be good enough, but it had to be better than hiding in one of those cabins that got torn apart like a fruit crate. It felt like some sort of animal instinct, hiding in that little drugstore like that. That whole day, that feeling I talked about earlier, the feeling I'd had the whole time I'd been working up there, that had gotten even worse the night before, well, it was the worst yet. And I finally knew what it was, you know, what it felt like. It all felt like I was being watched the whole time. Like there was something waiting in the trees, waiting for... Who knew what. But it wasn't like being stalked by some wild animal. It was worse than that. It felt... Malicious. It felt almost human. Almost. So there we were. It was getting dark as far as we could tell. We'd done the best job we could boarding up every door and window. There was a small coal furnace and we had that going. No choice, really, if we didn't want to freeze to death. We hadn't said much over the past day. There wasn't much to say. We were just sitting there, waiting and waiting. It wasn't very long after it got dark. It was the snow we heard first. The crunching, I mean. It was thick out there, so we could hear it getting closer from a ways off. Big, even crunches, which I guessed meant big, even steps. 
which I knew meant something big. It made its way to the front of the store and it stopped, and it stayed there for a moment. And then we could hear it circling around the building. It must have been looking for the best spot to get in from. Mikey just had this look on his face, this sad look of hope, like maybe that thing didn't know we were in there. I wanted to believe that too, but I didn't. It just kept circling around, and then all of a sudden it stopped, at the front. And it started. It started smashing on the front door, the windows, everything. We spent hours barring up that entrance, and it didn't mean anything. Wooden glass were flying everywhere, and now I could see flashes of the thing through the gaps in our barrier. One second it looked like it had thick, dark fur, and another it looked like it had hard skin. It was too fast to really tell. In spite of the damage it was doing, it didn't look like it could get in. The building was too strong, and the entrances were too small. I'll never forget the sound it made. An animal roars, howls, cries. It does so out of some primal instinct. Fear. Pain. This was anger. And it wasn't a roar or a howl. It was a scream. A scream anyone would have heard for miles around. And then, after it made that ungodly noise, it walked away. It ran. I would tell you what I thought at that moment, but I didn't think anything. Good thing, too. Didn't have time to be thinking. Barely half a minute after that thing ran off, a tree came flying through the front of that store. It blew right through the wall, sent the concrete flying. I took a piece of debris right to the head myself. You can still see the scar right here, see? Where there's no hair. Didn't think much of it then. There were bigger concerns. Namely, that tree had come down right on Mikey Thompson's legs. Calling out for me to do something. But I couldn't move that tree an inch. Maybe if I had a minute to make a lever. But I didn't have a second, because that thing was back. It was dark and the thing was hunched over, so I couldn't tell much. But it was tall. Maybe twenty feet, maybe more. Fur all over, every color with patches of skin here and there, two long legs and two arms, with big hands and terrible claws, sharp and dirty. And I didn't want to see it, but I did. There was something around its neck. It was... it was skin. Human skin. There was no denying it. It was wrapped around its neck like some kind of scarf. As for the face, well, it was too dark in there to make out anything yet. Before I could do anything, it swatted me aside like I was nothing and lifted that tree off Mikey with one arm. It grabbed him and bolted off into the woods. I thought about what was wrapped around that thing's neck. And I thought of Tony Stewart. And I wasn't about to let that happen to two people on my watch. In the chaos, I'd seen that Mikey had dropped his gun. It didn't look like it had gotten damaged, so I grabbed it and I ran after that thing into the trees. It was easy enough to follow them. Mikey's screams led the way. They had some ground ahead of me, but I was able to catch up. The forest around that town was dense. It looked like the thing couldn't move as fast as it did in the open. I could see it was about a hundred feet off, swerving through the trees, and I was able to get a good sprint going. Now, I'm not the best shot. Not by far. But you spend most of your time up north and you learn how to handle yourself. When I got close enough, about fifty feet between me and that thing, I took that rifle and I made my shot. It echoed off into the night with not a soul to hear it save for me, Mikey, and that monster. But it stopped, and it turned to me. I could just barely see its eyes in the moonlight. 
blue and shining, burning with a cold fire and looking right at me. The next second it was coming back, rushing right at me. I took aim and I fired again. If my first shot didn't hit it, that one for sure did. It screamed that awful scream again and threw Mikey to the ground, and I knew I had to run. I don't know what it was at that moment, but all I can think of was getting to the sawmill. I knew it was close. I knew I had no chance just sticking in the trees or running back to town. I remembered where the foliage was thickest on the way there, getting every second I could on that thing while it swerved through the trees or just knocked them down. Now, I want to say I had some clever scheme. Lure it into the mill, use the blade to cut it up. But the truth is it just felt safer than anything else. Nothing but dumb instinct. I made it to the mill all right, with no plan, out of breath, that thing barreling down on me only ten seconds behind. I had to fight it. There was no other option, so I turned around and tried to get one last shot off. It was already on me, and before I could line up it took a hold of my arm and squeezed. Squeezed with all that power that could tear open cabins and rip up pines from the roots. My whole arm went numb. But in that split second I mustered up all my strength and squeezed my hand as hard as I could. I saw the shot go right into the thing's shoulder. Smacked me aside and howled with anger. It started thrashing around in the mill, knocking down walls and support beams. I barely managed to crawl away as that thing brought down the whole building. Right on top of itself. That awful strength. It had busted up my arm and Mikey's legs and ripped Tony right open. But now it had done itself in. After everything settled, I crawled up to get a good look at it. It was covered in tons of wooden metal, but it was still poking out of the debris from the chest up. It probably tried to get out when it had seen what was happening, but it was too late. Up close. Right up close. What I couldn't see before in the dark was all too clear in the moonlight. The fur wasn't its own. It was bear and wolf and deer and elk and every other animal you could think of in those parts. It was wearing them like a coat, crudely stitched together, and underneath was hard gray skin. I checked where I'd shot it, and the bullets had barely pierced the thing. Where I'd shot it in the shoulder, the bullet was only lodged in an inch or two. All of a sudden it spasmed a bit and coughed. It was still alive. Barely. I went over to its head, where I'd been avoiding this whole time. I unwrapped its scarf of human skin, of Tony Stewart, of that drifter, of whoever else, and I pulled over its big fur hood, and there it was, staring back at me. A giant face, as human as yours or mine. An old wrinkled face, and those terrible burning eyes. And it coughed out something I'll never forget, no matter how long I live or how much I drink. It called out something in a low, awful voice, in a language that no other man has ever heard but me, but something that no one who'd lived the life that I'd lived could mistake. Cold, it said. So cold. Mikey Thompson didn't make it through the night. Too much blood loss. I barely survived myself, just long enough for the owner of the mill to find me. He'd driven up after he hadn't heard from us for two days. I told him everything and he saw it. That thing. And we agreed on what had to be done. We torched it all. The mill, and the cabin with Mikey and what was left of Tony inside. We said we'd found the mill that way. That some crazy must have done it and set fire to the cabin the next night. 
The police up there didn't give us any trouble. Nobody in that town did. They were very understanding, and more than happy to see us go. So, what do you think? You don't believe me, huh? Don't worry, I can see it in your face. What do I know? Old guy with one good arm can't work no more, so I stay home all day drinking. Well, what do you know? Storm light up. I guess you'll be going. Drive safe, and watch yourself. It's still cold, and you never know what's out there. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, featuring Anthony Botello, with music composed by Alain Zitron and original artwork by Jenny Henderson. This week's episode, In the Dead of Winter, was written by Anthony Botello. Tony Stewart was played by Chaitanya Valadares, and Mikey Thompson was played by Eric Sinat. Tune in every Thursday for new full-length episodes. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. And that's this week's show. Please gift us early by adding a rating for the Sonic Society to the Apple Podcast Store or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. Let other people have the gift of audio drama by letting new listeners know about the medium. And remember, you can email us your thoughts at sonicsociety at gmail.com or connect through the Facebook groups and Twitter. Please join us next week for another look at Stationary with What's the Frequency? Until then, I'm David Alt. And I'm Jack Ward. Good night. Good night. The Sonic Society is written and produced weekly by Jack J. Ward and David Alt, with original music by Sharon B. at SharonB.com. All features, interviews, and audio drama shorts are owned completely by their originators and provided to the Sonic Society by Creative Commons Licensing. The Society itself originates from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. The bridge between men and machine. What kind of change? One that changes everything. The organic and the digital. His head, it's metal. Your friend Alvin the Chipmunk is a non-stop recording hard drive. The ability to record every human sense, sight, 
sound, even thought. Everything anyone could ever see or hear gets recorded. Any human being could be a spy. This chip will allow us to know everything, as will the people we sell it to. They'll see all the data. Don't you get it? There is no one that can stop us. Hey, Rockstar. The Rapscallion Agency, a new audio drama from the creators of the Leviathan Chronicles, follows two of its youngest characters, Lizette and Clerican, who move to Paris. So, Clerican is in Paris. Welcome to Paris. And find themselves entangled in a sinister plot to control the world's most sensitive information. I can take them out. I said there were three of them. Now there's two. We've got to get out of here. No one is going anywhere. Leviathan Audio presents The Rapscallion Agency, available November 1st. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.